Welcome to The Black Athlete, a podcast where we put the past into the present of black sports. I'm Lewis Moore. I'm Derek White. We're sports historians here to give you the historical context for contemporary black athletes. And welcome back to The Black Athlete. I'm Lewis Moore, author of I Fight for a Living and We Will Win the Day. And you can catch my audible on the history of African-American, African-American athletes on Amazon. I'm Derek White, the author of The Challenge of Blackness, as well as Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Jay Gaither, Florida A&M, and the history of black college football. Welcome back, Lou. Oh, man. Good, good to be back. Good to be back. I want to I want to say congratulations to Luke. This is my I'm a big him up because his audible is like uh, I don't know what it is today, but the other day it was like number seven in the country. Number five. What's your peak? Uh, we we uh, we we peaked at four and I think we're uh, we're at six now of uh, getting bumped out by Donald Trump. And then uh, Bakari Sellers got me or whatever his name is. <laughs> uh, so I was I was number one in in, in, in FM uh, history and biography. All of a sudden now I'm number two. And yes, listeners, I do check all the time. That's right. Congratulations. I think that is uh, uh, that's what you know. It's it's rare that we as historians get to see our uh, you know that immediate gratification of seeing our our works sail to the top. There's only a handful of us get to be on the New York Times bestseller list. Um, shout out Ibram who uh, shouted out Blood oh, and yeah. Tears, right? Um, yes, but, yes. But all oh, he books, did? Yeah, yeah. He, Wait, time out. He blurred my What book. did he do that? He blurred my Oh, book. yeah, yeah. But I thought he did it like in an interview or uh, something. I like wish. Yeah, he's a FAMU alum. Maybe I send this to him so I can remind him to, to big up my book so I can carry like three with him uh, when he's on the road. Um, right. But uh, yeah, I will say this, that the New York Times, what, last week, two weeks ago, all the books uh, were by African-American authors that were, or, or about race and racism in the New York Times bestseller list. And that was pretty kind of exciting to see um, that uh, people uh, in this moment of, of racial conflict and racial reckoning are going back and looking at the books. And, and as, as me and Lou say this all the time, uh, you know, folks like us have always been doing the work, right? Like we've always, right. you know, our professors who who encourage us to, to head into this field. Uh, and this has been going on for, you know, over 100 years and, and since Negro History Week, uh, when Carter mm-hmm. G. Woodson took us, you know, encouraged um, black schools to study black history. And so I think that this is a, a great moment. And so now you're part of that legacy because you got the number one audible uh, in uh, that's what I'm saying. That's that's number one stunner. I'm saying <laughs> to the top. Dear listeners, that didn't come with money, by the way. So that's not. <laughs> I don't think I got. I'm not rich. I'm not rich. Oh so. man, let's see. Let's let's do a quick rundown of what has happened before we get in our topic today. Um, that has happened. Uh, COVID is is still here <laughs> apparently, and uh, it is taking out. Uh, college football teams left and right. Uh, we we I think our podcast what about a month ago said that right. the coaches were fumbling the bag on COVID, uh, and they are clearly are doing it again. Uh, and I think this is, of course, at least in my in my mind, this is exacerbated by the fact that we lack national leadership on this subject. And I think uh, I was telling someone today that the entire strategy that the government has taken. Uh, is that we just like, if you get it, you get it. 
That's the only right. Thing. Like we're not we're not taking any precautions, and you've left it up to states uh, and individual institutions uh, to to take this lead. And I think that the, what we're seeing as as uh, we just saw like an hour or so before we came on tonight, uh, Ohio State has suspended all uh, preseason workouts. Uh, because they had a, a mild outbreak and the same in North Carolina and uh, Clemson had an outbreak and they took a week off of their, their training. So, you know, this is in the Ivy league. Also my, my former employer, I talked to a colleague today and they, they, you know, they're disappointed, but it wasn't unexpected that they canceled all, all sports this fall. Uh, and they will revisit spring uh, later on this fall. If they're going to do anything, even in, beginning in January, they might not even have basketball at all this year. So it's like, wow, it's, 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 this is real. And I think this is the moment that's been the number one sports story. What else you got? No, I was, I just want to add to that. And I think part of it is, and we've had this conversation in like two podcasts, right? We did in March, we were early on this. It was like March or April when we had the one, the coaches are fumbling the, the ball in this COVID response. And then the one on policing and protests, we talked about it the last 20 minutes, um, Apologize, we had some mix up with with mics. We had four people on, but the last twenty minutes, we were talking about Ohio State and HBCU, and then the, also we got into the responses here. But I think part of it is, and how do I put this? Part of it is is that they see it's. I don't think this would happen, right? If if all the sports rushing back were all white, right? And I think part of it is is that there's college football is the idea of exploitation is is ingrained in college football. The idea of racial exploitation is really since the 1960s in college football, right? We start to see a lot of uh, teams become a majority black. And, and I think that's that's part of it, right? These black bodies have become guinea pigs for, for the rest of the nation to kind of watch, especially colleges. What's going to happen when you bring students back on campus in the fall? <laughs> and, and despite seeing the evidence, Right, that the moment you bring students back on campus in the fall, that that there's going to be COVID tested, and these are like in wide open spaces where they're working out, not in the classroom where it's all confined. That students are going to test positive. The other thing that trips me out is the athletic teams have resources to test, right? And so these these student athletes are are being tested. Regular the gin pop is not going to be tested, right? So it's like, why are we even? bringing these students back um, to the fall if we're not going to test them, right? Because we know once you test them, and we see this with these college athletes, that they're coming, there's a number of them coming up positive, right? The other thing that trips me out is that it's July <laughs> and college athletes are coming back on campus. It's like, come on, right? Let's give these kids, it's a year round Right. If you're a college athlete, it's year round. There's there's really no time off of, of right. And you're working out, working out, working out. It's like give these kids, let them truly be uh, student athletes. That's not what they're there for. That's what they would say. You know, right. Um, right. No, you're right about race and exploitation in college football. And I think that, you know, and I think that this is also some level. This is regionally defined. Right. Like, you know college football at UMass and then in which is the largest um, uh, division one program in, in upper new England, uh, it doesn't have the same fervor around it as it does in the sec. Right. We know this, right. But part of it is also that these sec schools with the exception of Vanderbilt are really like in 
these little college towns, right? And that they drive the way the state imagines itself. I mean, I'm, I work at the University of Kentucky and people are already, you know, you know, it's like big blue nation, right? This is who we are as a state um, and as a fan base, right? So so many people's identity. My When, my, when we first moved, I'll get to tell you this story before we start the uh, rest of our podcast is, and maybe listeners will find this funny. Uh, when we first moved to Kentucky, my wife, who's from California, we're going to Costco or something. And she's like, you know, she's like, she leans over and she's like, why do all these people have um, all this material, like all this UK stuff on? Is there a game today? And I laughed and she's like, what's so funny? I was like, no, this is just every day. Like every day is big blue day, right? Like, and you, you know, it's hard to grapple with that because it's not like that in California. It's not like that in New York. It's not like that in a lot of states, but you work in Michigan and you know that like you can go anywhere on a Tuesday and see a Michigan sweatshirt or T-shirt or Michigan State right. and Ohio State's right. the same. And so there's these places where college football is so ingrained into the identity uh, and college sports more broadly that that's hard to give up. That's just what that is. And, and, and when you add a level of exploitation and race on top of it, it's like, yeah, we're willing to sacrifice these kids because that's why they're on scholarship. Um, you know, I had to work three jobs to go to college. Da, 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 da. Um, and you know, mm, they always say that. They always say that. They always say that. They always, say that. They always, always, you could just pay like me. Hey, real quick though, on the, on the, um, the, the people where the, the Kentucky stuff, What's interesting I hear is that um, it's interesting and it's, it's a bit classist, but they call it a Walmart Wolverine, right? It's this idea, a Walmart Wolverine. It's this idea that you know everybody wears Michigan stuff, but not everybody goes there, right? Right. Um, but instead of seeing how big the fandom is and, and the base that Michigan is, it's really a knock on people. You just look at someone, right? It, it's like this kind of and how do I put this? It's not you wouldn't call someone black a Walmart Wolverine. This is a very internal white thing that white people say about each other right um but it's this look you look at somebody to say oh they there's no way they went to michigan right it's a very elitist uh, approach to to looking at michigan fans and their fandom uh but yeah you go around here it's either michigan state michigan occasionally you get to notre dame right and so those oh. are the big three out here um so it's pretty big out here yeah, no, and that's just, that's part of it. And I think this is, I think we've seen the cracks in this facade, right? I think they were trying to plaster it together with hope and dreams. Um, and it is, it is coming, it is crumbling under the pressure of, of a pandemic. Um, but it's also crumbling, you know, to be honest, it's also crumbling under the pressure of, 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 of racial, uh, you know, reconciliation and, 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 and racism, the way that institutionalized racism operates in the sports world. And I think that leads us, I think that's a decent transition into our topic for tonight. Uh, We're a little behind here, right? Well, you know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Bubba Wallace, uh, the race car driver in NASCAR, uh, the black, the lone black driver in NASCAR um, found a noose, his team, pulled into the garage at Talladega in Alabama and pulled into the garage and found a noose. And they reported it up and NASCAR uh, announced that they were ashamed of this kind of behavior uh, and that the noose uh, was seen as a threat and kind of intimidation uh, against um, uh, Bubba Wallace as he had been talking about Black Lives Matter. Uh, NASCAR has, uh, you know, done the unthinkable in some ways, uh, banned the Confederate flag 
um, from uh, the track inside the track. And so a uh, racetracks all across NASCAR. And so this has been a big, you know, for them as an industry, as a sport that has very little re- black representation, this is a, this is probably as much racial, racial reckon, uh, uh, um, you know, dealing with racism that one could possibly imagine in NASCAR. Uh, and then they did an investigation and probably the most thorough investigation uh, that one could possibly happen. Um, you know, one of, when this first happened, uh, you know, the uh, I think the conservative end of the sports world were like, this is not really a thing. Um, and this news and my question was, well, and I think I said this to you, Lou, like, did all the stalls have nooses for this hand, like this hand pull thing like in this location? Like, this is something that someone was just like, you know. Like I got to make these hand these, these hand pulls, and I got to go through all these garages. And the same person clearly did all of them the same way, right? Like right. then that that means then then there's a person that you can target. Like clearly he's not targeting Wallace. He's looking at you know that's just what he decided was he was going to use, right? Um, the investigation found two things, right? One, the FBI came back and said that look that news had been up before a year ago, and so it was not aimed at Bubba Wallace, which is great. I think in, to, in many ways, I'm glad they did this investigation. Uh, people came to really loudly, called it a hoax. And in response to this claim that it was a hoax and that NASCAR has been making something out of nothing and that Bubba Wallace is actually to blame, even though he never even saw the noose uh, that right. his team, team did it. Um, NASCAR did its own investigation, and this is the thing that blew my mind. They investigated 1,684 garages, basically all the, all the garages and all the tracks in the NASCAR circuit, right? right. And only 11 had pulled down uh, tie ropes with a knot, <laughs> and only Wallace's style had a noose. So wow. like, they were like, they confirmed that the noose wasn't tied like that at the start of October 2019 race, but it happened in the year before that someone had done it, but it wasn't aimed at Wallace is what they concluded. But I thought that the depth of this, right? And I think that one of the things that's been lost, and I think this is where we're going to come in, is that 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 the right-wing media um, and sports media, as well as uh, the president most recently, said that this is a hoax, right? That, that Bubba Wallace and NASCAR pulled a hoax. And I think that, I thought that the people, everyone acted, I think, appropriately in this circumstance. I mean, this is really a textbook example. Like if we were, t- if we were to take a case to corporate America on diversity training, this is how you would want it to be handled, right? <laughs> right, um, no, for sure. Like both, like, you know, in taking the strong stance in the front end and then doing the double checking in the back end and to confirm or deny these things. No one was hurt, right? No one has been accused of tying the noose. No one's been defamed. They just said that this is unacceptable behavior. And the thing that's been striking me is that some people are like, well, it's just a pull down time. Everybody's seen this, but everybody knows what a noose looks like. And then NASCAR even tweeted out the picture and like, look, it was a noose. And that's what, a noose. And that's, that's really noose. where we're coming in today as historians, right? Like, I think that, one of the things that was really clear, um, whether it was true or not, um, is that the noose as a symbol of racial hostility and racism and racial violence is embedded in American culture, especially for African-Americans. The noose means only one thing. Right. 
<laughs> right. There's no there's no looking at a noose and saying, oh, that is a pull down for a garage. Right. This it's 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 a it's a symbol of oppression. It's a symbol of hate. It's a symbol of violence. Um, and it's really been that way for what since emancipation. Right. I think it's fair to say. Yes. Um, and so that's when and, and I think if we're still on the, the NASCAR thing, I think that's where you got to like applaud NASCAR because Bubba Wallace's crew realized that, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 somebody, whoever put it up, I think I deeply believe that whoever put that up understood that too, right? This is you don't make a, a tie like that and just say, "Oh, this is a handful." You know, it's a noose. Right. Now it might not have been aimed at the one black driver, and there's no way we know that it was like six months in advance. But they, you know, what that you know when you're in Talladega, you know what a noose represents, regardless. Mm-hmm. of your color, right? But the ability for his crew to recognize that and say, man, like this, we got to do something. Because not what, what we realized in 2020, that's the year it is, right? <laughs> the COVID semester, yeah. <laughs> that, that not every white person, right, looks at that news and says, ah, this is this is a simple oppression. And, and part of that is, and this is why we're having the show, is because we do a terrible job of talking about lynching, right? Oh. We do a terrible job of talking about racial violence. So when I mentioned not every white person, right? There's there's Mike Leach who early on, oh yeah, in COVID, early like early on meaning like three months ago, right? right. Um, <laughs> tweeted out a photo uh, of of a noose, right? About if your spouse is bothering you or something like that, mm-hmm. and he's in Mississippi, right. right? And 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 that didn't play well. And I, I always said if he did that. In June, he would have been fired. Oh, absolutely. right, because June is as a post the post uh, George Floyd world. Everything's different. In April, people are like, "Yeah, that's bad." Go to the Civil Rights Museum. Yeah. Um, but but again, this guy and he played this role like, "Oh, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of an outsider type deal. I I didn't know." And in his mind, it's just a southern thing. And then, as we were talking about in prep, we just recently had another another conversation about the news. With with Penn State, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Penn State. Pat Pat Chambers, the head basketball coach at Penn State University, uh, one of his former players came out and explained it again in this post George Floyd world, where where athletes are are having a racial reckoning with their with their teams, right, and their their leagues. And he said that the reason he he never really talked about why he transferred. He was a starter as a freshman. He had put up good numbers. I think he was all freshman Big Ten. Um, he was a really good young player, and he transferred after his freshman year and got an immediate waiver to play at Iowa State. And one of the reasons was is that in a series of games in which um, uh, Penn State was in a struggle, was struggling, uh, Pat Chambers had pushed a player and got suspended. They had gotten blown out of Wisconsin, and he's in the gym, uh, Rasan, I'm going to get his name right, uh, Rasir Bolton was in the gym practicing alone and the coach came up to him and says, look, I'm here to help you. Let's talk about anything. Let me loosen the noose that is around your neck. Right. Ooh. Right. And, yeah. right. And, 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 you know, in, in Chambers defense, he was not saying that he was putting the noose around his neck. He was saying that this young, this young freshman basketball player is feeling intense pressure in a losing streak and that, you know, everybody's wants to win. 
Uh, and they're he's trying tight. To, he's tight, right? Like he's trying to do it. But the choice, the word choice there was uh, was deeply troubling to Bolton, and um, who was from Virginia, whose family clearly understood what the noose meant. Uh, and he, you know, he was like, that was enough. And, and he just felt like that this was not the right kind of program for him. And he decided to leave. And what was important that him and his parents had taken this, brought this to the AD's attention and nothing really kind of came of it. And so here again, in this moment where these athletes are using their platform to talk about race, uh, and racism, especially college athletes, um, Bolton is taking this thing to talk about what happened at Penn State. And I think this is in line right, where we have this moment with Bubba Wallace and we have this moment with Pat Chambers. You have this moment earlier with Mike Leach. And, and uh, this happens quite regularly that the news is seen by whites, right, as as something benign, since something to be hanging, but it doesn't have the kind of racial connotation. Even though in America, in this moment, the news really only has the racial connotation, even though white people were lynched as well, right? Like this is not to say white people were never lynched, right? This just means that the noose as a form of racial terror aimed at African-Americans has a specific kind of connotation. And when you add the exploitative nature of college athletics on top of it, it is something that, that, that college white college coaches and black college coaches, but should never, never broach. They should never talk about nooses. They should never have nooses. They shouldn't tweet memes with nooses. Like nooses should not be anything that they think of. Right. And, and this is why I think NASCAR, as you pointed out, that to switch, switch gears a little bit, NASCAR's team, um, uh, Bubba Wallace's team in particular recognized this and they understood this as racial terror and they reported it and they and they investigated. And that's what makes that so useful because we don't think of NASCAR as being progressive. Like we we teach no. history. We don't that's not what we expected to happen and 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 to be taken seriously in Alabama in that sport. And right. They just banned <laughs> they just banned the Confederate flag, right? So so you would you wouldn't expect that um at all. And that's why I think it was just such a such a big deal. And I think it's important at this point to to really talk about, we talked about this, why the noose is such a symbol of, of like of hate, right? Mm-hmm. And and violence and how when 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 black Americans hear that word, right, mm-hmm. or see a noose, it conjures up a certain image. And that's because lynching in America was used to instill fear in the black community. Right. So there's no way you can't look at that news and say this is this is this is not, you know, this is just some kind of funny game thing or I didn't know because mm-hmm. that's how it was represented. And 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 those lynches were real. And so let's can we take the, the next 10 minutes, 12 minutes to talk about brief history of lynching. And then I want to kind of get into some of the ways we, we teach this as we are coming up to teaching. Both of us talk about uh, lynching in our, in our class. I, I do it in my uh U.S. history class, my uh, second half of the, the survey. Um, I do it in my civil rights class. I do it in my FM class. And the reason why I'm bringing up class, because I think part of the problem is, is that um, we just don't do a great job in America or, or even a good job in America of talking about this kind of history of, of racial terror, right? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things we know, Derek brought this up earlier, that, that white people were lynched. Indeed, white people were lynched. They were lynched before the Civil War, they lynched after the Civil War. But what we know is that before 
the Civil War, really before emancipation, there's not a lot of black bodies being lynched or black folks being lynched in, in the South. And that's because enslaved folks were, were or in, the enslaved were seen as, as property, mm-hmm. right? So you're not necessarily going to lynch that property. But once freedom comes, that's when we see a complete change in the numbers when it comes to race being lynched. And, and when I teach lynching, I, I do it in, in I do I do reconstruction as a as a lecture, and then I do retreat from reconstruction. Mm-hmm. What I mean by retreat from reconstruction, right? So you have your thirteenth, your fourteenth, your fifteenth. You have you know uh, black politicians in the South, right? And then there's a retreat from that, right? Part of the retreat from reconstruction we talk about is, right, the Mississippi plan and voting, mm-hmm. right? Part of it is is just the the, the economic exploitation of, of sharecropping, right? But, but it's all pinned on the idea of instilling fear in black bodies. And that's real fear. And, and I use lynching, right, to explain that. Um, as many of you guys know, if you, if you add up the numbers between about 1880 and World War One, one every four days, a black person is lynched in America. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we give that stat, the way I teach it is through Ida B. Wells. Um, if, if you're, if you're an educator, um, there's a lot of good primary sources, Ida B. Wells online talking, not only talking about lynching, but also convict lease system. And when we were doing prep, I, I talked to Derek and we were talking about the NASCAR's investigation. I was like, this is what, this is how Ida B. Wells went about investigating Lynch. If you don't know, listeners, she, she wrote this book, Southern Horrors. I believe you might be able to still find it on Google Books for free. It comes out in the in in 1890s. It's been in reprint a number of times where she essentially is investigating lynchings. And the main cause she finds is what? On the one hand, economic competition. On the other hand, it's what she calls that threadbare lie, that idea of uh, black men as as a rapist of, of white woman. And then she says, she says it's a threadbare lie. She said, these are consensual relationships, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, and once she says that, once she says that gone, right. They run her out of uh, bounties on her head. They, 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 they run her out of the South. Another thing I do uh, with students, right. To talk about the horror of lynching is I actually have them um, look up st- um, incidents in the newspapers. So mm-hmm. we have a green at college campus. We have um, access to online sources, uh, America's historical newspapers. And so I just tell them, hey, put in, in quotations, Negro lynched, right? And see what comes up. And then we bring them to class and, and then we read them. And it's just this, for them, it's just this horrific experience that they, there's no, unfortunately, I don't do trigger warnings, right? This is history. But it's a it's a horrific experience, um, and and they've never really seen this type of violence before. They've never really talked about this type of violence, right? And and when you read these newspapers, sometimes there's five thousand people there, right? They're, yeah. they're they're putting advertisements in newspapers, right? They're they're cutting off body parts and saving them as souvenirs. Mm-hmm. Um, they're using them as postcards. So one of a great video to show. Um, and you can find it on YouTube now. It's so graphic; you actually have to prove that you're you're over eighteen. Um, if you type in, I believe, "without sanctuary," right? There's a, a video set to Billie Holiday's "Strange Fruit," and and it just shows lynching photos that were postcards. And it's like you you turn off the lights, you show it in class, and it just cuts deep, right? And then you try to talk to these students who are ninety nine percent white about lynching, and they're just like, "Oh, ish," right? Yeah. What do we say? We've never been taught. Um, 
real quick while I'm at it, and and, and part of it is you try to explain to them, well, how does this, how is this even legal, right? That's what they're wondering, right? Because this is America. There's no way this would be allowed. But when we talk retreat from reconstruction, one of those cases that makes this essentially legal is the U.S. v. Harris, uh, 1883. Essentially what it says is that the federal government, right, cannot step in when it comes to crimes of individuals, right? So if an individual person is committing crime, that's not the federal government's role to step in. That's the role of the state. And in the South, right, once reconstruction is over, once you, you strip away black voting power, right, and, and they have no role in politics and they have no role in policing or anything like that, boom, there's, there's the, you know, you, this is when you're going to start to see these lynches increase and there's nothing anybody could do about it. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And I think this is and this is a thing. Right. And I think one of the things that happens with with, uh, you know, in, in, in during Reconstruction is their attempts to with the Ku Klux Klan Act, for instance, uh, trying to create federal laws. Right. And then, that, as you pointed out, that that Supreme Court case says that, you know, murders and capital crimes are really to be judged at the state level, that these southern states uh, have no means and not no means, no will to to. Uh, to convict, indict, convict um, uh, whites for killing black folks. And and there's a twofold reason, right? There's one is that this, this notion of white supremacy, right? That white people have to reaffirm their, their power uh, over blacks uh, in the absence of slavery. Um, but the second part is too, is that you pointed, you hinted at this earlier where you t- talked about uh, sharecropping, right? That there's a series of labor requirements that are needed in the South. And so one of the things that you see is that these lynchings are often used to stop black folks from, from migrating, right? Whether it's migrating from rural areas to the city or from uh, to the North. And so we see these kind of ebb and flow, um, uh, you know, uh, the, the kind of the numbers of them ebb and flow, especially around World War One, um, especially around uh, even going in ahead of World War Two. Right. Because there's a sense that you don't want folks to actually um, have uh, black folks to have the, the opportunity to, to move on to a new place. And so this gets us into this question. Right. You know, you pointed about how that that once the Supreme Court rules that that these crimes have to be judged at the state level and that once local police decide that they're not going to to um, investigate or charge anyone uh, for these kinds of crimes, they are so ritualized, too. Right. And so the news is part of this ritual. Right. One of the things that that even when you read the newspaper, you can't quite get. But like when you read the, the history books, it's like, you know, if someone's been accused of rape or, or you know, um, uh, assaulting a white person, they get drugged before the family. Like, is this the person who assaulted you or your daughter or whatever? And they have to say yes. And the crowd goes crazy and they go and they begin right. this lynching process, whether they actually use a noose or sometimes they just fill them full of holes. Sometimes they burn. I, you know, I try to tell students that the noose is just symbolic of all kinds of kind of ritual murder, uh, racial ritualized right. murder. Um, but what happens is that what you start to see by 1910, 1911 is that white politicians in the North are beginning like, this is a little bit much. And uh, Leonidas uh, Dyer uh, introduces a bill, what he calls an anti-lynching bill with the support of the NAACP after a lynching in uh, Springfield, uh, Illinois, I believe. 
And and this is like, you know, for for a decade, right? They're trying to, the NAACP is trying to raise money and trying to get this anti-lynching bill brought to, to through Congress because they recognize that only the federal government, the intervention of the federal government is going to have the ability to slow or stop these kinds of racial, racial terrorism. And it, it never passes, right? This is kind of the, you know, we talk about how uh, institutionalized racism works, right? Black folks are disenfranchised in the South. And so they're over, you know, they have no say uh, in the congressmen elected to the House or the senators and both congressmen and senators work in conjunction to to stall the bill, to kill the bill. And it never comes up. It passes the House in 1921, but it stalls in the Senate in 1922. And so an anti-lynching bill is never uh, passed uh, in American history, right? And I think this is one of the things that we we get. And so one of the things that these coaches have said, Mike Leach said this as a person who's like, I didn't know. Pat Chambers was also like he didn't know. And in an interview with Jesse Washington for the undefeated, Pat Chambers said something. He said, um, I want to get his quote right here because I, I want to get it, you know, I want to be fair to, to Coach Chambers here. Uh, he says... Um, uh, he said to him, oh, he says, he's like, I love my players. He's like, I think it's important for you to know. I love my players. Uh, I care about my players. I'm a faithful man. I listen to scripture. I live by the scripture. On He's like, he said he did not know a noose reference would hurt Bolton. And Jesse Washington, who's doing the interview, asked, how could you not know? And to me, right. that's the most important question. And I think that what we're getting at is that one of the things that's happened in, in K through 12 history, as well as college history, is that too often students are not familiar with this part of African-American history. What you get is this kind of heroic U.S. narrative that is, you know, a city on the hill all the way up to the greatest country in the world, right? And in making that in making that trek, right, that these ideas, whether it's slavery or Indian removal or lynching, these things are exceptions to this narrative, <laughs> right? And so as exceptions, you don't have to teach them. And when you come right. through African-American history like we do, one of the things that you really are challenging is that maybe those aren't exceptions. Maybe this is what America is. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, if you think about it, we thought that's that's one every four days up until World War One, right? And then there's that break with World War One, but it, but it's like even even after that, lynching is just it's it's it, it occurs. It doesn't occur as much, but it's it's there, right? The threat is there. You you owe you oh oh I owe you money on the scales. Okay, not right. Like right. like. You're not even going to if you're if you're a sharecropper, right? You're not even going to challenge, right? The fact that you're getting ripped off, right? <laughs> um, uh, if you oh you think you're going to move up, you're going to be big time. No, there's there's something there always holding you back, um, and and the fact that we don't talk about this in like you said in K through twelve, this is why we have a problem. The other thing that stands out to me when we talk about Jesse Washington interviewing that Penn State coach 
is that Jesse Washington also has a piece on lynching on the lynching of Jesse Washington, right? It's one of the most horrific lynchings that we talk about. There's there's plenty of them, right? There's plenty of horrific. They're all horrific, but one of the more famous ones or infamous ones happens in in, in Waco, Texas, right? And so if 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 you listeners, if you if you um, you know, Google Jesse Washington the undefeated in lynching, you know, he'll he'll talk about he talks about that story, right? This idea that I'm named after uh, somebody who's part of this horrific history, right? Um, so that's one of those when he says, "How could you not know?" Right? Because in his mind, as as a black person, like that's ingrained in you, right? You know what the news represents, and that that white folks could say, "Oh, I didn't know. I'm from the north." This stuff we talk about. That's the problem, right? This is this is this is part of our history, and, and we have to be able to explain it, right? So when 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 Bubba Wallace right says, "Hey man, I saw," or his people say, "We saw this news," right? We should automatically everybody should be like, oh, "Like this is awful! Like how does this happen?" Right? We should. When we see those kids on Jimmy John's. By the way, my family will never eat Jimmy John's again, right? Because mm-hmm. um, that kind of stuff happens. Um, when we see those kids on Jimmy John's using dough to make a noose. Right. Like that's that's like this idea that they feel comfortable doing that. Mm-hmm. Or a couple of years ago at the University of Wisconsin, there's a football game. Mm, yeah. I believe I believe it was it was probably during the Obama administration. Right. Or, yeah. or right. Because the person came up dressed as it might be right before the election as one person was Hillary. The other person was Obama. But the, I believe the person had a noose around him. Right. Yeah. This idea that you think that you could just be that comfortable. And walk into a stadium of eighty thousand people that you're like, I'm gonna go ahead and wear this noose. I think he gets kicked out, and then the 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 school winds up put a weak statement about free speech or something. Yeah, like that. yeah, yeah. But but that 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 again, man, that's just that's part of the problem um, that that we have here, right? Where we don't we haven't done enough to talk about this horrific history. And I and I want to say this real quickly too, right? Like, and I think this is. I want to make two points and because we were at 37, I don't want us to go too much longer. But I, the first point is that 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 the news and lynching serve as the violent terrorist edge to maintain Jim Crow. Right. So that all the kinds of et- racial etiquette and not looking people in the eye and not questioning white supremacy is all backed by this threat of lynching that's happening regularly enough where both folks as parents like you telling your kids like this is how we got to live because i don't want to see you get killed right like that's the way that works um and then the second piece that i want to kind of change gears because i'm glad you brought up the piece at wisconsin right is that college campuses also have this long history of using uh lynching um symbolism to express their discontent at sports Right. And right. But, but what's interesting is, is that we like when you go back and look uh, um, at uh, college students in the 50s and 60s and before hanging, uh, they will hang their coach in effigy. Right. Which is basically right. you create right. a paper mache doll that looks like the head football coach and you would hang them on a tree because you're disappointed because they lost. Right. Dean Smith talks about how he was hung in effigy after he, you know, after he had desegregated university of North Carolina, which is a kind of very powerful image. Um, And so there become when black students get on college campuses in the South, 
there's a kind of racialized edge, but there's this all this longer tradition of just how do you express discontent at the coach? You hang them in effigy, right? We never see that anymore, right? Like it's interesting that we never see coaches getting like Pat Chambers is like won 40% of his games at Penn State and no one's hanging him in effigy, right? Like this is the kind of thing that 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 we don't like somehow has disappeared from the litany of kind of fraternity, white fraternity life on college campuses. But no one knows that they should use not use the word noose relating to the African Americans. Like to me, there's a certain something that's like lost in translation that mm. that when we think about how sports and so that these coaches who no, no longer face the threat of being hung an effigy by the student body because of their losing ways, right? Now those kids just get on a message board and complain about the coach or they buy, you know, fire MikeLeach.com or something like that. But now you don't see that, right? And so at the same time, so Mike Leach can tweet out this thing about the news, knowing that there is a certain kind of racial connotation now, especially now that he works at uh, Mississippi State. And Pat Chambers can tell one of his black starting basketball players that there's a noose around your neck and I'm trying to fix it. Like, like that doesn't, none of that makes right. sense. Even, even though Chambers was not trying to be racist in the sense is that he just lacked this kind of general sensibility. So when you say you care about these players, you don't care enough to learn black history. That's true. Right. Like, you know, that's, you know, that's, like, that's, you know, that's powerful. Yeah. Like, you don't, you don't care enough. Right. You don't care enough about recruiting black kids and their parents and their families. And you go in their living room and you say, I'm taking care of them, but you don't care enough to learn anything about their experiences so that you don't think that that's, that's not even coming into your head. Right. Right. No, that's, that's powerful. That's a, that's a, that's like, uh, my man that oh, I love that you don't care enough of, you know, to learn about black history. That's my man at, uh, Lakers GM, right? Right. Tweeting out like, Oh, we, we, we decided to learn about this. I watched Selma in 42. Like, wait a minute. Like, like you're around black people the last 30 years of your life. You are, you are right? hanging out with the fat five, you're Kobe's agent. And I granted, those are real live jobs. Like you learn a lot, but like you didn't care enough at any point in that time to pick up another book and be like, Oh, I want to kind of know what this black experience is like. Like, how do I understand how these people have to move in the world? Right. What kind of fears do these NBA players um, have right. We watched the uh, congresswoman from. Is she a senator or a congresswoman who owns the WNBA Dream? Oh, senator. Uh, yeah, Lafleur. Yeah, yeah. She's coming out and she's like, "We don't take sports out of." It. And I'm like, "Look again. There's like, you don't care enough as an owner to to even understand that this again predominantly black league in Atlanta, which is a predominantly black town. But you're gonna go tell them to to basically shut up and dribble, right? Like this is the thing. Like like that's the problem, right? Like. Though, like everybody's like, well, who signs up for these African American history classes? And I'm like, I want like white people need to sign up for these. Ha- they need these lessons, right? Like every Halloween, right. like we talked about this before. Like what is every, to, yeah. every Halloween um, when I'm teaching like U.S. history, I say, look, don't go out, there, <laughs> don't do it, don't go out there in blackface, <laughs> don't do it. And every yeah, year, don't and do I'm it. Like, look, don't let me find out you in blackface. And I just been straight up, like I'm gonna just fail you for the class because clearly you haven't been listening to anything I've said. Right. Don't do it. Yeah. No, no. And um, yeah, no, that's, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And and I think that, that, that um, it's time. Right. And I think we'll get back and we'll get out of here. One of the things you said earlier, we looked at the newest New York times bestsellers. I mean, it's all, it's all stuff on, on black history. Right. And so hopefully, 
Like this is not just a fad and skidding somewhere, right? Where where we, like you said, we've been doing this work, right? And now all of a sudden people are just discovering this work. Oh my God, there's stuff on history and, and uh, black history and race, right? Sport. Like hopefully, <laughs> right? It's sport, right? <laughs> hopefully, 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 hopefully people take this seriously and, and do some real learning. And I hope that this this podcast is is, is a start, right? And if you're interested in books, hit us up. Uh, one good book we were talking about before uh, the pre-show we didn't get to today, if you're uh, Trouble in Mind by Leon Litwack. It's just like, God, it must be 400 pages. Thick. Yeah, it's like longer than it's that. Thick. It's like 700, but I think. Is it 700? <laughs> Clearly, I haven't read the whole thing. No, <laughs> I assign uh, the chapter Hellhounds. It might be chapter six to my students. And you know how students are. Usually, I teach in the afternoon. If you got that one o'clock class, man, you're going to have to give a trigger warning because, you know, they'll, they'll try to read it right before class. And then they'll come in like, man, why didn't you warn me? I was like, oh, my bad. Um but it's just, but it's just that graphic, and and I'm bringing this up because I want to explain to the listeners that that's what the news represented, right? That's mm-hmm. that's the power of the threat, right? Of of the news, seeing that news, and that's why it was such a big deal that you had to get the FBI involved, right? You had to to check every garage to make sure because this is what that hate is what the news symbolized. Exactly. That's it. That's it. On that note, we are out. Till next time. Peace. Till next time. Peace. Peace.